Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Hello everyone, how are you? How are you keeping? Father Brendan Kilcoyne here in Athen Rye on a gorgeous spring evening. It's a sin to be in, but I'm of course delighted to be here talking to you. Today, the readings were just stunning. And the problem with readings that are just stunning, what, you, you dread preaching on the Trinity. The Trinity is difficult to preach on. No offence to the Trinity. The Trinity is difficult to preach on. Because, you, you know, it's the real test of a teacher, and a priest is partly a teacher, to be able to take very, very complex things and difficult things, to understand them and then to simplify them. Because, you know, a congregation is a hugely mixed group. Different tastes, different backgrounds, different abilities to grasp the material, all that kind of thing. So you you have to kind of get a, an acceptable beginning level at which to approach the thing. The problem today wasn't that. The problem today is, is that it was like this incredible banquet of theological riches. You have that first reading, the phenomenally dramatic set piece with Abraham and Isaac and the attempted the attempted, the mandated and attempted sacrifice of Isaac at Moriah, and then God saying, no, that's not required, tantalizingly just as the knife is being reached for, and then the sacrifice of the ram in his place. And so Abraham is left the father of us all. He's in an absolutely horrible place, but it's tremendously grand and dramatic. He is left standing on nothing but God, and that is terrifying. He is left standing on God's word, holy, including as well in a moral sense. This is very difficult terrain, it's dark and difficult terrain. And he is there and he does not understand why God wants this, but he obeys God. And Abraham is far from perfect. Abraham, our father in faith, this always gives me, you know, I mean, it, it gives me, um, I don't know, it calms me down about my own innumerable faults, is that Abraham is our great big bearded daddy in faith. And daddy's no angel. But we won't go into the details. Read Genesis for yourself, okay? He's no angel. But his tremendous, he's like Noah, his tremendous fidelity to God his obedience to God. He redeems himself. He comes back and, and when he's asked for this unspeakable offering, he does not question God. And he goes out to give this tremendous gift from God that was given to them in their old age. He goes out to give his son back to God. And that journey to Moriah, that journey into the land of no support, where there is no support from earthly things, all earthly voices will say, don't. They will cry foul. They will say, God is a monster to ask for this. Now, Kierkegaard, the, the philosopher, knocked great value out of this whole scene and hung on a lengthy reflection on the, on the nature of God because he so despised the smug conventional piety of the respectable Protestant middle class of, was it Copenhagen he lived in? Yeah, yeah. Could have written that anywhere. Abraham journeys into Neverland. He, he goes down the rabbit hole. He goes through the wardrobe. He goes into a land where he is totally dependent on God. 
That is a terrifying place to be. A church is a terrible place. A place of worship is a terrible place. It is beautiful but terrible. And this is a, is a place of sacrifice. You have to remember the old temples were all slaughterhouses. They were swimming in blood. You have to remember that. And that included the temple in Jerusalem, which came much later, of course. But will the blood be of humans? Is God going to ask for the firstborn, as some of the pagan gods did? Is he, and, and no, he stays Abraham's hand. It is his obedience that he seeks. His complete dependence on him that he seeks. And his having done that, God can now work with this material. It's a remarkable place to be. A very frightening place to be. I think everyone who marries is in that position where you're standing there and the world is saying, no, be cautious, just live together or whatever. And you, you commit everything to the other person in the sight of God. I think everyone who becomes a priest, I think everyone who becomes a religious. And I think people who don't marry at all or become priests or religious, but who commit themselves to living out their baptism, everyone sooner or later who says yes, as Abraham did, without saying anything. Because you can say yes by your actions, by your obedience. Your obedience can say yes. And, and this is something we need to talk about a way more. I'm, I'm reading uh, Ian Kerr's Life of Newman at the moment. And this whole thing of just living it, just doing it. It's not Pelagianism. It's not saying that you can earn your salvation, not at all. If anything, Newman tended to the evangelical wing of Anglicanism. He was... Weary, very weary of good works. No, good works are necessary for salvation, but, but faith first. Faith first. This is a place we are all called to go to. Sooner or later we all find ourselves there, where the, the, the world has nothing to say to us. And it is God or nothing. It's just, it's God or nothing. And that's a terrifying place to be because we like to be in charge. You know, I think we all stand here when we say yes, whether we say yes verbally or whether we say yes with the manner in which we live our lives. But we all stand here with our yes. Yes is affirming. Yes is positive. But yes is said in the minus range of numbers. It is said in the metaphysical. It is said in the apparently non-existent. This yes is said to God. And it is said to God against all advice of the world. And now we go to the gospel. The gospel is just amazing. It depends on which commentator you read. Some will call it a theophany, rather a Christophany. A theophany is it's a manifestation of God. I'm, I'm looking here at the interpreter's dictionary of the Bible, which I find I find a great go-to. I have the old one. I don't have the new one. The new one costs an arm and a leg. I don't know. It's, obviously, it's much more up-to-date, the scholarship. And the theophany, um, let's see. It's from the Greek, theos, God, and finine, to make shine or to show. It's an appearance or a transient manifestation, unsought, of a divine being or of God to man. There we go. And there are various kinds of theophany. Scott Hahn makes the point that really the transfiguration is more a Christophany. You can have angelophanies as well. But actually, 
like scholars would say, really, isn't the whole of the New Testament theophany? Can we really talk about this as a theophany? Isn't the whole of the New Testament a theophany? I think probably what we'd say is, it's just a sudden experience by these apostles of the true theophany that is happening in their presence. See, the trouble is if you hang around with God, you eat with him, you sleep with him, all the rest of it. Human beings are just incredibly, we're incredibly full of ourselves and forward. And honestly, I'd say we'd, we'd even start giving lip to God like, you know, you hang around with God, you, you feel you know God. And suddenly they're, they're kind of shown they don't know God. God is incredibly beautiful beyond all, beyond all telling. And God shows himself to them. But he's been showing to himself to them all along, but in a form they thought they understood. And now, bang! Because in a sense, they did understand. Yeah, because Christ is God and men, but now, bang! They see the nature of what's happening with this man that they know. And in that sense, it is theophany. It's, I would say, a blaze of the theophany. It's, the theophany is like the sun. You know, you get these storms on the sun. It's a blazing, raging storm of the glory of God. And of course, then you get the cloud. I mean, you hear this stuff, you cannot read the New Testament without the Old Testament. So you hear somebody going on, rabbiting on, oh, the, you know, the Old Testament's old hat, we don't need and all the rest. First of all, that's heretical. Secondly, Christ fulfills the Old Testament. He doesn't abrogate it. He doesn't get rid of it. You can't read the New Testament without the Old Testament. You can't understand this man who is God. You cannot understand him without the Old Testament. The Old Testament is crucial. It's the background against which the theophany, the protracted theophany happens. Obviously, the transfiguration is, is the Greek word used is metamorphosis. It's a change. Franz Kafka wrote a famous short story called Metamorphosis. I'm not being pretentious. Well, I am pretentious, but actually at this point, I'm not being pretentious. Uh, he wrote a, a famous short story called Metamorphosis. You really should read it. In which the anti-hero, if you like, Gregor Samsa, a minor official in the civil service, for Kafka, life was sort of invested by and infested by and bordered by and overshadowed by bureaucracy. Anyway, he wakes up one morning changed into a beetle. <laughs> well, there you have it. It's the damnedest thing, but there it is. And he goes on. It's, re it's really quite humorous and it's quite dark, the story, as to how his family handled this, his becoming a beetle, how embarrassed they are by it, how outraged his boss and the authorities are and all the rest of it. And he's a health hazard and you name it. Anyway, he becomes a beetle. It's a very telling short story if you want to see, get a clue as to what man has made of himself, left to himself, having, in Nietzsche's phrase, killed God. Now, you can't kill God, but you know, you know what he meant. Or at least we think we know what he meant. Nietzsche was a genius and crazy. Well, crazy towards the end of his life. Some would say well before the end. But if you want to see Christian anthropology, the new anthropology, Homo sapiens is what we all are, man, man the wise, man wising, if you like. Here we have homo novus, homo salvatus, 
man saved, new man, after baptism configured to Christ. Because here's the point. This is crucial. It's not done as some sort of a... I know this is a ridiculous thing to say, okay, so I'm, I'm not being theological, okay? I'm just trying to be hip and incredibly with it. Here we have not some sort of an ego trip by God saying, look at me how beautiful I am. Just tremble, you ugly and miserable creatures, you worms, tremble before me. Here we have God saying, look at me, this one that is so beautiful is madly in love with you, and you are this beautiful now. All right, now I know a theologian is just going to sigh listening to my raveling, but I do think I'm onto something there. It's not original, but I think it's not a bad expression of it. This is God not only letting you know something, something of his glory and of what he is, but God letting you know something of the glory that he has called out in you, that he has placed in you, the worth that he has put on your head. This is a descendant of Abraham, a descendant of Abraham who was promised in his old age, descendants as many as the stars in the sky. This is a descendant of Abraham who fulfills and completes and perfects Abraham. The new Adam, the new Abraham. The new everyone, the new you. Now I'm telling you now, if you're not standing there and saying Christians are crazy, you haven't understood Christianity. Because we are crazy in the world's eyes. We are crazy. And you're crazy if you listen to us. And it's crazier some of us are getting. I was relatively sane when I was a younger priest. I find I'm getting madder as I get older. It goes with the territory. I'm telling you now, I don't trust anything now. I, I'm beginning to see old Kierkegaard's point of view. I don't trust anything now that's too acceptable to the world. And I know how big hypocritical this is because I like my bit of comfort. But I, I just don't, tr I don't trust that on myself either anymore. De Valera, I think, used to say that he could never get a decent night's sleep if the Irish Times had agreed with him that morning. Yeah, it always shook him. I'm beginning to get to a point where when the bien pension middle classes, the, the gilded ones, when, when our lords and masters, the new landlords up in Dublin, when they agree with us, I'm beginning to think we've almost always screwed up. You can be sure of it. This is where we're at our best. We're as cracked as the proverbial outside convenience rat, if you get that. Cracked, daft, daft as a brush, touched, literally touched by God in this theophany. And I'm sorry, I, I couldn't give a damn what scholars insist is not a theophany. This is theophany. The whole of the New Testament sure is theophany. But this is where the theophany boils. It boils up in our faces. It's a storm on the face of the sun. It's magnificent. And do you know something? After this, we're not looking too bad ourselves. We're uh, cutting an ontological dash, shall we say. We're out on the town. This totally changes humanity, not this theophany, but the whole theophany of the New Testament, the incarnation. It changes the whole of humanity. God is no longer now burning in a bush. That's theophany. 
He is no longer raging and thundering on Sinai. That's theophany. He is now searing through ordinary life like a sunstorm. That's theophany on the grandest scale. That puts the the in theophany. I know, I know. I shouldn't attempt these, these little pathetic efforts at wit. But you know what I'm getting at. And, and this brings us back to Newman's thing about ordinary life, because here God has not burned simply in the bush. Not, God has not simply come down like the cloud. And I want to talk about the cloud in a minute. God has not simply, you know, just thundered and roared. And we have a, a prefigurement of this in the Old Testament, isn't it, with Elijah, where God is not on the earthquake and God is not in the storm, but God is in the, is in the gentle breeze, the still small voice, the gentle breeze. The theophany in ordinary life. Ordinary life is transformed. Ordinary life has become divine. And here are the great words. Here are the great salvific words that we speak to each other in ordinary life when we talk the scriptures to each other. Words we always talked to each other, but which now take on divine and inspired uh, character. It'll be all right. You're going to be all right. Put on your coat. Eat your breakfast. You're not going out of this house without a breakfast. You're not going out of this house looking like that. Put on some clothes. Those are great words. Those are saving words. Those are words that now partake. I suppose what I'm saying is our ordinary animal love for each other, our ordinary animal caring for each other is now transformed into theophany. It is now transformed morally and spiritually, ontologically. It's transformed in its very essence. And these are the whispers of God. The gentle breeze, the still small voice. All of ordinary life is transformed so that Newman can say, and he wasn't original in saying it, but he probably, he's very interesting in the, in the take he had on it, is that it was really very hard to beat um, an ordinary life lived well according to the commandments in terms of perfection. To the extent that I think he's, he said, or was he quoting some saint when he said, if you go to bed on time, you're already perfect. Now, going to bed on time, you're not already perfect. Yeah, I know, but you can see the point being made. But we get on with it splendidly. We get on, we get on with it because getting on with it is our yes, our protracted yes, the protracted theophany that is that is the church and the Eucharist which continued the presence of Christ on earth and the Christ in the face of every baptized person and so on and so forth. And I don't say that lightly or airily. So on and so forth, etc. And other things ad infinitum. Because all the so on and so forth are also theophanized, divinized. So like the character at the end of Bernanos' novel, A Diary of a Country Priest, dying, we can whisper, all is grace, all is grace. And I'm not coming the pantheist on you, like Joseph Mary Plunkett here. I see his blood upon the rose. He's whispering to us, talking to us all the time now in ordinary life because of this. And then the cloud comes. 
And here again, you're straight back to the Old Testament. You see the way the whispers are, you know, we say in the West of Ireland, we say coggering to each other because the Gaelic word cogger means whisper. And and in, in the West and perhaps in other parts of Ireland, country people often just took Irish words or grammar and stuck them into English. And it can make for very picturesque English, as, as, as Yeats, for instance, discovered, and he used often that conversation. So the, the Old Testament and the New are coggering to each other the whole time. They're whispering to each other because one completes the other. And so you have the cloud, the Shekinah, the, you have this indwelling of God. You have, you know, the, this coming down. But the thing is the whole, again, in the New Testament, the, the Shekinah, the, the cloud covers the whole world and all the peoples. And so the cloud that went before the Israelites in the desert. Remember that a cloud, a cloud to us in Ireland is a dismal sort of omen. <laughs> because it never stops raining here. Well, actually, it's worse. It does stop raining sometimes. It'd be easier if it never did, because then you'd be resigned to your fate. But in Ireland, you get the, the cruelest spells of the most glorious weather. And it reverts to rain very quickly again. So, you know, it's tantalising. We have a bad relationship with clouds, but a desert people, a people who live surrounded by desert, they don't have a bad relationship with clouds. Clouds are good. Clouds are omens of good. They presage life, fertility and life, because they bring the rains. And so the cloud descends. Look at this. Look at the power of God. What magnificent imagery. And it's straight out of the Old Testament. It's straight out of Exodus and Numbers. So you got your exodus, you got your numbers, and then the voice says, this is my son, the beloved, listen to him. And you get this again, Shema Israel, hear, O Israel. Isn't that, isn't that Deuteronomy 6? This divine, as the Italians say, chiacchieria. It's a wonderful word, a chiacchieria. This chat that's going on between the Old and New Testaments the whole time the interplay of imagery, and all the rest. And what is this, all of this saying to you? You are redeemed. You are beautiful. You will shine like the stars forever and in all eternity. Remember Daniel? You will shine forever for all eternity. It's done. Am I saying that you're saved no matter what you do? No, I certainly am not saying that you're saved because... You, you can have hell if you wanted. You can have a good feel. Hell is there for anyone who wants it. You know, don't let me stop you. Knock yourself out. You can reject this. You can go away, as we say again in the West, you can go away with a pus on you. A pus, it's quite a rude slang word in, in Gaelic, which means a, a bad face. I think, I think the French would say a, a moué, if I've got that right. Make a bad face. Go away with a pus on you. You can if you want. I've quoted this before, Peter Julian Aymard, the great uh, apostle of adoration, who said, you know, people are always saying, oh, if only God would appear to me. And he said, the Israelites became idolaters at the foot of a flaming Sinai. The theophany was going on, raging and thundering, pouring down upon the mountain, and they turned to idolatry at the foot of it. The apostles took gibberish from Mount Tabor. And here it's a reference to the thing where poor old Peter says, what, what a great thing to be here. We'll, we'll make three tents. You know, Peter really, honest to God, he's, he's, he's the Homer Simpson of the apostles. But he's indispensable. 
He's the rock. Peter is just the everlasting man. He's, he's brave, he's wonderful, he's a super guy and he's an idiot. He's all those things at the same time. Now, I have issues with the depiction of Homer Simpson's, of the, of the male character, if you like. Uh, I have issues with that, but it does capture something. It does capture something, okay, of every man. And Peter is, he's decent. As we say in the West again, he's a decent Alshkin, you know, he's a good Alshkin. He's decent. Uh, and he says, you know, I'll make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, the other poor Egypt. You know, three ten. What else are you going to do? You know, get out the good china and send James and John down to the, the supermarket for bickies. God love him. It's a great story, and it's important that that's in the story because it shows that we we just cannot handle God. We just can't handle God. We can't even handle Jesus, and that's God's attempt to talk baby talk to us, to walk with us. The great theophany that goes on for the whole of the New Testament because we just don't get it. So I suppose poor God, bad theology, I know, but here we go. Poor God, he's just worn out trying to get the thing across to us uh, and we're so dim. And finally, he just spends 33 years with us and we still don't get it. Let me make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. It's not quite as posh as it sounds because a farmer of those days would have, or a fisherman, he'd have made a tent in an instant. Because you often needed to put something over your head so you could take a nap in the midday. It was impossible to do much work in the heat of the midday sun. But it's probably also a reference to the Feast of Tabernacles, the booths, the temporary dwellings, you know, it's... It's probably a reference to that as well, which is gorgeous. You hear this again? Whisper, whisper, whisper to the Old Testament and back. But what he's seeing doesn't need tents. As God says, in fact, to David, do you remember? Are you the man to build me a house? You're going to build me a house? You punk. You're going to build me a house? I built. I built you. You know, I built your punk ass. And you're going to build me a house. Nobody builds me a house. I build them things. But he lets them build. You know, let give the baby a, a bit of pleasure. Let him at it. There is no house that can contain Jesus. I know I call him the prisoner in the tabernacle, partly out of just pure mischief to poke my finger in the eye of modern liberal spirituality, but partly as well because, in a sense, he does make himself a prisoner in the tabernacle. He submits to us, as he did in the great theophany of the New Testament, where he gives himself to us. He lets us ignore him and insult him and finally kill him. He does. He's, he's, in a sense, the prisoner in the tabernacle. But in another sense, I mean, you, you can't contain God. We didn't kill God. We didn't even kill Christ. He rose again on the third day. And we'll rise again with him. And here I come to the crux. Here I come to the point. Those of you now who are sane and sound of mind, solid, respectable, Good old boys, good old skins, those of you who are sound and dependable, those of you who are the great middle class dream can just go outside for the moment because, you know, you mightn't be able to handle this. Okay, it might be too much. You're too young for the strong, dark meat of reality, as Chesterton called it. We'll just keep feeding you cow and gate. So you go outside and somebody will give you sweets and let the adults talk. Those of you who are half cracked, 
those of you who are broken, those of you who are greedy, those of you who are envious and lustful, those of you who, who need to be redeemed, those of you who bleed and weep, you can stay. You can stay. You just might be able to understand this. You're going to need to weep a lot more and bleed a lot more, but you just might get it. The others, it's kind of foundation class, okay? You might make honours. You just might make honours. The price will be high, but you just might make it. You are destined for glory. And there is no room in the church for those who are not greedy enough, crazy enough, demented enough, hurt enough, wounded enough, weeping enough, bleeding enough to dream of glory and to long for glory. To be beautiful, to be eternal, to be all-powerful, to be all-wise and all-knowing. If you don't want to be like God, if you're not that crazy, I don't know. You should settle for hell, which I think, you know, will probably be painted a nice magnolia. And, you know, you can go down there with all the others who dared to put limits to God's love, who dared to put limits to God's mystery and power, who dared to diminish the sacred, the theodrama. Isn't that what Balthazar called it? The theodrama. You can clear off with all the others who paint the rock a cashel white, or rather magnolia. And we'll stay here, the cracked, the broken, the lame, the suffering, the banjacks, the ones who have dreams and envies and greed. We will be the conquistadors of this new and eternal world in the name of Christ. And you can have all the rest. And you're welcome to it, because there isn't a damn thing in this world that, as far as we're concerned, doesn't lie to you. And that's including but, the, and and. Is it Mary McCarthy, who said, uh, the, the American wit and journalist who said about somebody, I think it was Mary McCarthy, who said, I wouldn't believe a, a word out of her mouth, and that includes but, the, and and. I don't believe that from the world, including the full stops, the capital letters, the apostrophes, and the semicolons. They're all lying. Enjoy the world, but don't trust it. We have somewhere to go. We have a place to be. We're destined for heaven. You know, they said about the Irish, you know, and, and probably the Italians and the Poles as well, they went to America and they never shut up about the old country and dreaming of the old country and wishing they were back in the old country to the extent that probably the other Americans said, well, why didn't you stay in it? If you're a believer, you need to have that nostalgia for heaven. No matter how well it's going here, you still miss the old country, which is the new country, which is the eternal country. A nostalgia for the future. Huh? A hankering for home. If you don't have that, if you don't have that sense of being an exile, if you don't have that sense of making enough money to go back, if you're not that dysfunctional, then you go your way and you make your home here. And I'm sorry, I know you're going to say this sounds like sour grapes, but it's not. Because I believe I have found something wonderful. It's not that I'm wonderful. I am wonderful because of this. So are you. I think you're crazy not to look into it more. People would lay serious money on a horse at worse odds. And I've said that before. 
I think you're crazy to dismiss it so easily. We're meant for heaven and we have eternity in our eyes and in our hearts. We are restless and beautiful because we are gripped by a real dream. We are real participants in a living theophany. We aim to join the seraphim shouting at the Godhead, Kadosh, Kadosh, Ayos, Ayos, holy, holy, holy. If you don't have that exuberance, if you don't have that streak of the barbaric in you, that longing for the wide and open plains, you are not fit for the kingdom of God. For the kingdom of God belongs to those who get drunk at the table of the Lord and eat like pigs of his hospitality. You must, as we say again in the West, lay your ears back to this divine banquet. And that's what's coming out of the readings very much. It's an absolutely magnificent message. But if you want to see what man has made of himself, that short story by Kafka is just perfect. In the Gospel, we are called, through the power of Christ, the sacrifice, the passion and death and resurrection of Christ to join with him, to be in him, to join the life of the Trinity, to join the Theophany. Or you can wake up a beetle, which is the nightmare of a deeply sensitive and brilliantly intelligent man on reflection on the nature and likely progress of the modern world. Yeah, do Theophanies still happen? Well, they're not part of the deposit of faith and you don't have to believe them, but theophanies are alleged and the church does look very, very kindly on some of them. So right, let's look at it. I mean, I'm using the term loosely here. The stigma of St. Francis, you could say, was a kind of a touch of theophany. Hmm? The, his experience, his mystical experience in a, a Mount Averna, was that theophany? Well... I would say it certainly was close to it. Or was, you know, was it simply a private revelation or was it a definite manifestation of the divine? I know, I, 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 when you couple it with the stigmata, you know, which were seen by others. Uh, the saints who were seen to elevate, you could say that's, I don't know, outside at the hem of theophany, levitations. The most spectacular theophany alleged in the entire history of the church, as far as I know, is Fatima. I was just listening to a very enjoyable interview with the late Father Benedict Rochelle, where he talked about this. And I, I'm presently reading his book. You know, he wrote a short book on these, these divine manifestations. Um, Fatima, yeah. I, I don't know, something like, was it over 40 square miles there was something seen? Even though Greenwich, uh, the observatory at Greenwich didn't register anything. And it should have been able to. And yet it was seen, the miracle of the sun. It was attested to even in viciously anti-Catholic publications. That something extremely strange happened. Knock is a theophany. I don't know. You'd really have to, you know, it would take much longer to talk about this. But miracles continue in the life of the church. The church accepts that. And as I said, while the church does not require belief in these things of a Catholic, at the same time, it does mandate 
a prudent caution towards them in every sense, that you don't dismiss them straight away, you don't believe them straight away. In fact, you're very slow to believe them. But also slow to dismiss in all justice, unless they're obviously ridiculous. It takes a long time to pronounce on it, and the Church doesn't make a definite total, 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 total pronunciation really in any of them. That's important to remember. But it does look very kindly on some of them. Fatima would be one, Knock would be another. At this stage, two popes have gone to Knock. It started really with uh, the Archbishop of Tum, T.P. Gilmartin, a very mar great Marian priest, very holy man, who made a pilgrimage to Knock for the 50th anniversary in 1929. But he stressed that it was a private pilgrimage. But uh, our look, I mean, it was impossible to do that because once you do that, you know, the people of God start to make their own judgment on it and uh, you have the census fidelium and it was taken to be the beginnings of church approval anyway. Then John Paul II went there in 1979, the centenary, and um, it wasn't bang on the centenary, you know, it was a few months later. And Pope Francis went there in 2018. So the church does look very kindly on it. It's theophany. If it happened, I believe it happened, but it's up to you. This isn't pie in the sky, okay? This is a revelation to you of who you are. It's a revelation to you of who Jesus Christ is, and a revelation to you of who Jesus Christ is is a revelation to you of who God is, and a revelation to you of who God is in Jesus Christ, a Christophany, is a revelation to you of who you are, because in Jesus Christ you are saved, if you are willing to be saved, you are brought into Christ, you are washed clean in the blood of the Lamb, you are brought into Christ, adopted into the life of the Trinity, and assured of heaven if you say yes. You are required to set off on the journey to Moriah. Grace builds on nature. You are capable of doing some things on your own two feet, you are. But you're not capable of bringing it to a conclusion. Okay, nature without grace, that's, oh, let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Okay, it's decent, it's nice, it's good, and it's not worth a damn in the long term. Peter became a deeply impressive man through grace, a tremendous witness to the faith. So I, I suppose that pulls together really what I want to say to you is, please don't misunderstand this, I'm, I'm not being uh, inappropriate. You're beautiful. You may not feel, I, I don't know how you feel. For some people, this is a problem. You, know, you may not feel attractive to other people, whether physically or spiritually or emotionally or, or you know, in terms of charisma or whatever. But you are attractive to God. So <laughs> he seems to see something in you. And that's a pretty powerful friend. That's in you know the words of isn't it uh, Eugene Boylan, Dom Eugene Boylan, the, his famous spiritual work, uh, this tremendous lover. You're not doing too badly. He sees something in you. He has put something in you, and that worth even if no human ever found you lovable or attractive, it would be immaterial. Now I know that that would be. I mean, that is a terrible. That does terrible harm to human beings when others treat them like that. But God is passionate about you. I mean, the, ver the very meaning of the, of the name Israel, Yisrael, is literally, as, as I understand it, he who turns the head of God. You turn the head of God. 
You know, when we say, oh, she has turned his head, we generally mean he's hopelessly in love. You have turned the head of God. God loves you. You are chosen. You are saved if only you will allow him to do this. I, I don't know. I, I remember a professor we had, he said resignedly coming up to the exams, he was trying to give us a hint that one of the hardest things he found coming up to exams was asking the same questions year after year in a, in a new form. Okay, so I suppose one of the hardest things about this, and it's very much a problem with teaching, is finding ever different ways, I won't say new ways, but different ways in which to say the same incredible life-giving things. Because in spite of cloud and transfiguration and all the rest, we're still capable of going, oh, we'll make three tenths for you. You know, we, we, we're still capable of not getting it. So that's what I wanted to say to you today, you dashing creature who has turned the head of God. I don't know if you're a man, you James Bond-like character. If you're a woman, oh, any number of beautiful actresses. God knows who. You turn the head of God. He, all right, I, I know I, I really am risking becoming disrespectful at this stage, but it's, it's worth the, the danger. Heaven is whistling after you. you. You haven't, if you knew your worth, you'd shake. If you knew the price that had been paid for you, if you knew the value he has set on you. I've said this before, you'd be afraid to get out of bed in the morning in case you broke something, for God's sake. You are so precious to him. And that is what is revealed on the mountain. I hope you have a lovely week ahead. And it looks like we're gradually coming out of this strange, strange, strange episode. I mean, we've never been in a better place to understand the Gospels because the whole, the all of life has been so weird lately. And as you know, it's practically impossible to understand the Gospels if, you, if you're smug and if you think you have it all worked out. The one thing for sure is the human race doesn't think it has all worked out at the moment because even the vaccines are enormously problematic. Look, I wish you God's blessing. I wish you, I wish you the, uh, the, the full warmth and understanding of this magnificent theophany. This, or rather this, as I said, this magnificent instance of the great theophany, this blazing of the sun, that is the, the showing of God to the inner circle of the disciples, but to you, to you personally, forever. God bless you. God keep you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.